welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here uh, together in one service. I know that uh, these are unique opportunities. They're always fun. There's always a lot of energy in the room. And I wanted to start off by just mentioning something that I haven't determined if it has anything to do with what I'm ultimately going to say or not. But I want to share this with you. Last Sunday, uh, I happened to not have any responsibilities in the gathering here. And Julie and I came together and we sat right over here. And I had an experience as we were here on that day that kind of sort of has something to do with today, but I think it's actually wrapped up into a larger uh, picture and uh, just a word of encouragement to us and a word of encouragement with gratitude. We were sitting there, the service begins, uh, we worshiped together, worshiped with the people around us, we greeted them, and there was something about the whole thing. Dave got up and he spoke and what he said Uh, got to me, spoke to me, God spoke to me through him. There were things happening in my own soul during that experience and things happening with Julie and I just by being in here together. And it reminded me of how important it is uh, that we do this and what it does to us even when we we may not realize it's doing anything to us. There's a kind of shaping, I could feel it happening, Last week, when the service was over, we chatted with some people, and I just sensed this life together, this communal connection, this importance of being together to worship, to pray, to be discipled, to disciple each other, to pray for each other, to minister to each other. And I was filled with a sense of gratitude for Oak Hills, for who you are, for who we are, and for who we are becoming. And again, as I've said many times and will again today, This mysterious, broken, goofed up, messed up, weird thing called the church continues to be God's idea and plan uh, for discipling us in his kingdom and reaching the world. And I found last week to be a very good thing. And that gets us into a little bit of what we're talking about today. So would you stand for the scripture reading? It comes from An important passage, a meaningful passage, one you may be familiar with. It's in John chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. I think I'll drop back and maybe read 4 through 11, just to get wild here. But John 15, the whole section is really 1 through 17. It's a section that is worth knowing. I would encourage you as we do this, oftentimes we read, close the Bible, put it away. I'd encourage you, if you can, to keep it open Uh, Because we're going to sort of keep our eye on this throughout our time together. John 15, I'll start in verse 4. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this 
so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I mentioned, Jesus is with his friends uh, in this particular passage. They are in the upper room and it is Thursday night of what we now call Holy Week, literally just hours before he is arrested. And they're all together and he's giving them final instructions. And as we expect with any set of final instructions, he's focusing on the core essentials, not wandering off on things that might have importance but may not be central. He's focused on the core essentials, the crucial stuff they will need in order to enter the vast unknown they're about to enter as his followers and witnesses and church. He's telling them things, obviously, that they don't know what's coming. He's telling them things that will sustain and hold them as they endure this vast unknown. Challenges galore await these first disciples, along with despair, confusion, difficulty, as well as remarkable displays of God's presence and power that they are going to be a part of and they are going to see. And if you add all this up, these are the very things that await all of us who are friends and followers of Jesus. Challenges, despair, difficulty, along with remarkable displays of God's presence and power. And I find it significant in these final instructions that Jesus says to them, I've told you all this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The idea that Jesus himself had joy is intriguing. It becomes even more intriguing to consider that his joy can be in us. The idea that our joy is incomplete, not finished, imperfect, kind of aligns with personal experience, but it is nearly unimaginable and at the same time soul-stirring to think that Jesus' joy, the joy that he had, can complete our joy, round it out, finish it, perfect it. We embarked on this Choose Joy series a few weeks ago because of a growing sense that authentic joy in this broken world is increasingly elusive to a growing number of people regardless of their religious affiliation. Many hard things happen in life and in the world and questions linger in the minds of many. Is real joy possible in this life? Is joy even rational? Does it even make sense? Is it possible to have a pervasive and constant sense of well-being, our working definition of joy during this series, when life and the world are so difficult? Is that even possible? And as we've been emphasizing, the Bible resoundingly answers yes to all of these questions. In our passage, Jesus is on the verge of unspeakable rejection and suffering. Literally, within an hour or two, He will begin his passion. And yet in his final instructions, he's talking to his followers about his joy. How can he have joy? How can he talk about joy? Minutes before he's arrested and beaten and executed. Our joy is incomplete as we've been talking throughout this series because it is often attached to a certain set of circumstances. And as they go, so our joy goes. So our joy comes and goes with life's ups and downs, which is why it needs refinement and completion. 
But if Jesus is speaking truth to us here in this passage, he had a pervasive and constant sense of well-being even as he was unjustly betrayed, arrested, suffered, and died. Now, I find that almost impossible to believe. Is it possible that he had a pervasive and constant sense of well-being even as he was unjustly betrayed, arrested, suffered, and died. Not that he liked what was happening. Not that he had a smile on his face. Not that he was laughing his way through it. In fact, he grieved his way through it. And he begged God to spare him from it. But through it all, he knew he was in God's care. We might put it this way. He knew there was a bigger picture and there was a bigger story and he was part of that bigger picture and story. So he had joy. See, we're talking here about a joy that does not budge when life gets difficult. And we all know in big ways and in small ways, life gets difficult. I wasn't around the church campus much this past week. I was off with someone from the church doing ministry together on a really nice golf course. We chose joy all week long. But even on this abbreviated week, there were no less than four people I interacted with who are dealing with the difficulty of life in real and in excruciating ways. And in this series, we're talking about choosing joy that does not budge when life leans against us. Or to use Jesus' final instructions to his friends a page or two over from what we read in John 16, verse 22, still final instructions, still talking to his friends. He says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. When Jesus' joy completes our joy, it won't budge when life leans on us. It won't budge when life gets hard. So far in this series, we've talked about various practices, things we can do to cultivate this joy, practices like slowing down and noticing God's goodness instead of hurrying so fast we go right by it. We've talked about the practice of grieving, grieving our own brokenness and grieving the world's brokenness instead of letting the things that don't go well harden us and we become scoffers who look at these things with sort of a cynical eye. We've talked about the practice of thanking God for his good gifts instead of complaining about what we don't have. And today we're talking about the practice of abiding in the love and life of Jesus instead of detaching from his love and from his life. Abiding is an old word we rarely use. And to me, I'm not a huge fan of the word. I mean, it's nice, but it's actually too religious of a word in my mind. Too religious to a degree that I don't know that it means that much. It sounds good. We say it. Yep, abide in me. Okay, great. But in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 9 of this short passage I read, Jesus says to his disciples, remain in me and remain in my love. And the word used is abide or remain would work as well or continue would also work. Well, Jesus is telling us, stay connected to me and to my love. And when I think about this, abide, remain, continue, the phrase that I think of is stay connected to me and to my love. 
Because staying connected is the key to pervasive and constant well-being no matter our circumstances. Staying connected to Jesus and staying connected to his love is how his joy ultimately gets into us and how our imperfect joy gets completed. So let's talk about joy as fruit. From a Christian perspective, joy is not a feeling. We've said that many times. It's not something we can reach out and grab directly. In fact, when we try to reach out and grab it directly, it darts away from us. Rather, joy is the fruit of a particular way of living. Pervasive well-being is the byproduct of a particular way of living. Pervasive well-being is the result of staying connected to Jesus and the life and power of his kingdom. This is actually not that complicated. It's not easy to do, but it's not that complicated. John 15, verse 5 And also verse 11, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And as we know, Jesus used everyday pictures to help people experience his teaching and take it all the way in. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Pretty simple. The picture is a grapevine in a vineyard, a common image in first century Palestine. For us, it could just as well be a tree trunk to make it easier. The vine or the trunk provides nourishment and life to its branches. And the branches give evidence of this nourishment and life when grapes or leaves or oranges or lemons or limes start to grow. It's really pretty simple. Now, there's all kinds of fruit. We could go into all that. But for today, joy that doesn't budge when life is hard. The kind of joy that Jesus had is the fruit of staying connected to him and to his love. So we choose joy when we stay connected to the vine that is Jesus. Again, it's pretty simple. Life on the vine, as it is sometimes called. One other important detail in this passage that you you might find helpful or interesting. When Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener and I am the vine and you are the branches, he's drawing back into Israel's history. He's going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Because in the Old Testament, on several occasions, Israel is called the vine. Psalm 80 being one instance. Israel then was to be the conduit through which God's life and nourishment was to extend to the rest of the world. But for various reasons, that didn't work out so well. So now Jesus identifies himself as the true vine who brings life and nourishment to all who are grafted into him. Again, we're bringing our Western eyes and ears to this, but if we were sitting there in the room when Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, for some of us that true vine language would evoke in us, wait a minute, we thought Israel was the true vine. He's saying he's the true vine. And so this is an important aspect of this. He's not suggesting to be one option for joy in our lives. Not one plan to bring joy, but the option and the plan. So when we stay connected to him, the fruit of joy, the fruit of a sense of well-being becomes evident in our lives. Verse 8 of John 15, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, joy, showing yourselves 
to be my disciples. In 1 Thessalonians, a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to people who were suffering, and he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping this is coming through, this realization that when we speak of joy, we're talking about something that is a gift from God that he cultivates into us if we want him to. Galatians 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Next one is joy. And Paul goes on in that passage and he says, so let us keep in step with the Spirit. That sounds a lot like stay connected to Jesus and to his love. Keep in step with the Spirit sounds like abide, remain, continue, stay. So joy is cultivated by the Holy Spirit as we stay connected to Jesus and to his love. So we want to talk about how do we do that? How do we stay connected? But before we do that, there is an elephant in this John 15 passage. It's sitting there. And we need to take a look at it and think about it. On a cold Monday morning last winter, I took our dog Gus to a park. The previous day was one of those wild winter days we had last winter. Wind, rain, storm, wind blowing like crazy through the area. And the park I went to with our dog looked like the set of an apocalyptic movie. Branches severed from trees and just strewn everywhere. I'd never seen anything like it around here. Hundreds of these branches laying on the ground. It was really kind of eerie. There was nobody else there. There was this silence in the park. I expected to see Mel Gibson in his Mad Max role as I was sitting there. Branches that were made to be part of a tree had broken away and were now on their own and they would never produce any fruit again. This is the image that Jesus is leaving with us. This is the elephant in this John 15 passage, verses 4 through 6. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Again, pretty obvious, pretty simple not something fun to talk about. One of those verses that we kind of wish we had one of those little kid scissors they gave us in kindergarten and we could just cut this little piece out. A branch that detaches from the vine or the trunk is no longer in the flow of Jesus's life or nourishment. That's what he's saying. But what is he actually saying? What does not remaining in him actually look like? We need to think about this. Because simple answers won't do here, tempting as they may be. Reducing this to some kind of behavioral test won't do, tempting as it may be. So I want us to think about this for a minute. And I'm going to press in here a little and just kind of invite you to hang with me. Judas betrayed Jesus and broke off from the vine. Hopeless, fruitless, ended his life, it appears he was detached from the life and flow of Jesus, perhaps always is what the Bible indicates. And so he was left hopeless and fruitless. Peter, however, denied Jesus, but somehow still remained connected to him. 
hopeful, fruitful, had a future, kept going. The disciple Thomas, after the resurrection, said, I don't believe it. He doubted Jesus' resurrection. But in his doubt, somehow, some way, he appears to have still remained connected to the vine. If we do the math, punch a few numbers, only 8.3% of Jesus' 12 disciples stayed the course when the heat was on. That's not a great ROI. 91.7% of them, percent of them turned, turned from him. 91.7% of them turned from him. And yet, 90.9% of them ultimately, somehow, someway, stayed connected to the vine, even though their loyalty fluctuated at the crucial moment. You see where this is going. We could line up an impressive roster of biblical characters who wandered, and yet somehow, some way, apparently, it appears, they stayed connected. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Job, Jonah, sort of sounds, with the exception of Jonah, like a hall of fame of biblical characters, but if we just flip the table around, we could also say it's a hall of shame of biblical characters, and yet in some way, shape, or form that we may not understand, they all remain connected to the vine, even though they had their season of wandering off. So here's my point. Detachment from the vine, the elephant in the John 15 passage, can't be about screwing up or wandering off. Because we all do that. The Christian life undulates back and forth. Seasons of oasis, seasons of desert. Ups and downs. Feeling close to God. Feeling far from God. Detachment in the way Jesus is talking cannot be reduced to an up moment, okay, I'm abiding, or a down moment, okay, I'm detached. It just can't be reduced to that. Uh, it can't be reduced to even a stretch of time. Detachment, it seems to me, runs much deeper than this. Maybe we can get to it this way. When Jesus and his kingdom are our trajectory, is the word I would use. And this is where I'd invite you to jump into this and just kind of think on this for yourself. When Jesus and his kingdom are our goal, our trajectory, where we're heading, or put it this way, when Jesus and his kingdom are our true north, then we want him. And we want to live his way in the particular details of our lives. Our hearts, we might say, are oriented toward him and toward his kingdom. And obviously, don't even have to say it, there are ups and downs, twists and turns, steps forward toward Jesus in his kingdom, steps backward from it. Why? Because our old self dies hard. But Jesus and his kingdom are at the heart or at the center of who we are. We're connected to the vine. Jesus' life and kingdom is our true north. He is what we want, and he is where we are going. And this reality shapes every aspect of our existence. As a matter of fact, one of the pieces of fruit that represents this kind of orientation toward Jesus and his kingdom is that the reality of who he is and the things that he is about flows through him, the vine, and into us, and it shapes every aspect of our existence. No arena is outside the reach 
of this reality. His life and his nourishment flows and touches everything that is about us or that we're dealing with. Our relationships are affected. Sin is affected. The suffering we go through is affected. Our career choices are affected. What we do with our money is affected. Our sexuality is affected. Sex is affected. Politics is affected. Our thoughts, our bodies, our decisions, and we haven't even scratched the surface on what's affected. It's all in play for those who want to stay connected to the vine. It's not all perfect, but it is all in play. And it seems to me detachment from the vine as we're talking about it happens then by inches. I mean, the storm that happened last winter that Gus and I paraded through the remains of that's a rare thing where branches all at once a wind comes and crack and off it goes that just doesn't really happen all that often it seems that a branch rarely falls all at once rather it slowly starts to crack and weaken and sever from the vine and for a long time this may be imperceptible So we put it this way, we inch our way toward detachment without even realizing it. And this happens as we gradually cut ourselves off from the things we know that keep us in the flow of Jesus' life and power and kingdom. And obviously, all along the way, as detachment is happening, God's grace is available, God's grace is pursuing, God's love is reaching out to us, So I don't want to play this in some sort of heavy-handed, guilt-based, shame-based, drop-the-hammer, scream-and-yell kind of a moment, just simply wanting to say the elephant in the passage is that detachment can happen. And I think, for many, (coughs) this kind of detachment is on the rise in our culture. So let's talk about staying connected. One way to think of abiding or staying connected is this phrase, and I don't know where I got this, but I love this phrase, inhaling the reality of the kingdom of God. One way to think of abiding or staying connected is as I go through my day, I'm inhaling the reality of the kingdom of God. And that's shaping how I'm doing this, how I'm seeing that, what my decisions are here, there, wherever. Staying connected to the vine then is about situations and relationships and experiences and practices that help us inhale the reality of the kingdom of God. And there are countless things we could talk about here, endless ways to stay connected to the vine. I've chosen three to mention to try to be as practical as I can, and all three of these are reflected in the passage. That's why I chose them. So the first way we stay connected is by memorizing soul-shaping passages. And I can just read the mind. Oh, boy. Now we're into memorizing Count me out, too hard, too old, not interested, too much work. Hold on a second. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. If my words remain in you, I don't even know what this means, but Jesus says, if my words remain in you, your prayers will possess Jesus' life, and Jesus' power. If my words remain in you, 
The reality of the kingdom of God will be right in front of you and on your lips and on your mind and on your heart at all times and you'll begin to navigate all these goofy details of our lives according to God's word and truth. Nourished by his words. They'll not just be in our head, they'll be in us. And we will be in them. And this will keep us connected to the vine and able to navigate life and its uncertainties according to God's way and truth. Now, why do you say memorize soul-shaping passages? To distinguish it from verses. Someone said a long time ago to me, and I didn't like it then, but I grew to like it. Memorizing long passages gets it into us in a way that a little verse doesn't. The way they put it was, you don't take a shower one drip at a time. You stand there, crank on the water, it comes down. That was a little hokum move. It comes down. I'm learning, Dave. Speaking hokum. You don't little drip, little drip, little drip. Large passages that we take into us. A lawn supervisor was out on a sprinkler maintenance job. A lawn supervisor was working out on a sprinkler maintenance job, and he pulled out a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench and started working on a Finley sprocket. Just then this little apprentice leaned over and said, you can't work on a Finley sprocket with a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench. Well, this infuriated the lawn supervisor, so he went and got volume 14 of the Kinsley Manual, which says a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench can be used on a Finley sprocket. Just then the little apprentice leaned over and says, it says sprocket, not socket. That means nothing. That's an old Steve Martin comedy routine. <laughs> and about 25 years ago, somehow, somewhere, I heard it. And then I heard it again. And then it got into me. And now I can't get it out of me. <laughs> and I wish I could get it out of me. We do these sound checks. I've done about 12,000 of them over the years before the service. And almost at least 50% of the time, Mike, you need to do a sound check. Okay, this lawn supervisor was on a sprinkler maintenance job. He started working on Finley Sprocket with Langston Seven Inch Gangly Wrench. It's in me. And I can't get it out of me. Well, just forget it. I can't forget it. Because it's in me, and I can't get it out of me. See, this is what happens when we memorize long passages. Not grinding over them, just reading them, so they get into us. And once they get into us, they won't get out of us. Once they get into us, it's like riding a bike. Try to forget how to ride a bike. I'm going to get on this thing, and I don't know how to do this. Really? Just start pedaling. You'll be there. They're not in our head. They're in us. So here's three long passages. And I suggest you just read them. What do you mean memorize? Grind over it? No. Read it. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. And eight months from now, if you read it once a day or once every other day, you'll know it. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, reading all the way through verse 20 of chapter 5. And here's a great one. John 15. 1 through 17. So the first thing is memorize long passages. The second one is obedience. John 15, 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Not very complicated. Do what he says. He's teaching us. He's showing us. Walk in his way. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book near the end of his life called The Screwtape Letters. And the book is a series of letters written 
from a senior demon named, named Screwtape to a junior demon named Wormwood. And he wrote these letters to help Wormwood trip up a Christian he's tracking. So when you read the book, it really twists your head around because everything's backwards. The enemy is God. The good king is the devil. Good is bad. Bad is good. The truth is evil's perspective on it. So it's really a lie. So you, you get a workout when you read this book. In one of the sections, this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service, meaning God's, Jesus's, being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Choosing to do what God says. I have a rhetorical question for you to think about. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of everything he ever taught. Everything he ever said, he incarnated it, he embodied it, he lived it out perfectly. Every teaching, everything, he lived it out perfectly. And the question rhetorically to think about is, was that a big burden for him? Had he had the choice, would he have lived a different way because a different way would have been a better way? I think not. Obeying and doing what God says. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's inconvenient, but more times than not, it is a joyous path. More times than not, we realize it verifies that it is the best way. More times than not, it's not a burden. Last thing I'm going to mention by way of practice is connect with others. One of the ways to detach from the life and power of the vine is to detach from his people. This is what I was driving at with that seemingly random comment about Julie and I here last Sunday. I felt connected in, in uh, the people of God with you. And staying connected in the things that bring life and power are, are nurturing things. I've mentioned this before, but this idea of detaching from the people of God is becoming a very popular option for many people. And yet, we can't get past the fact that every aspect of biblical faith and life with God happens in community with a few other people who are traveling on the same road. And this community thing is messy. It's really imperfect. The church is always only about 61% of what it could be. But every aspect of biblical faith and life with God happens in community with others who are traveling on the same road. They connected to each other and they worship together. They come to the table as we will in a moment together. They disciple each other. They encourage one another on the road of transformation. They live on mission together. They tell stories of mission. They hear stories of those on mission. They're in relationship with each other. 
And I see this whole thing rising in importance as it relates to Oak Hills. That we keep getting smaller. Meaning, we keep moving from this big room into smaller rooms with smaller groups of people where the real action of life with Jesus gets sorted out. What happens in here, as we always say, it matters. And it's important. But what happens in smaller settings is far more effective at working these things out into the particulars of our everyday lives. Getting together with a few others to seek Jesus together. So I want to make a plug. Dave said it already. But this next series that starts in a couple weeks, the whole thing is predicated upon inviting you to get in one of these smaller groups where the stuff we talk about in here can get processed face-to-face with other people. In the back of the room, there are sign-up sheets, the date or the, the, uh, the day of the week, and the time is listed and the day it starts. And we're just asking everybody, don't hesitate, don't be afraid, sign up, get in a smaller group, and do this thing eyeball to eyeball so we can learn together uh, what it looks like. This series is basically a spiritual formation 101 series, and it will be much more meaningful if we do it together in smaller settings. Well, we have the opportunity today to come to the table. This is what happened as Jesus goes through John 15 and 16, and then they get into John 17. They celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So we practice open communion here at Oak Hills. That means if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate in this celebration. And so I would encourage you at this point to bow your heads and to close your eyes as we think about the table.